Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada this morning. As listeners of our show know, each morning we discuss the weekly parasha, the weekly Torah portion that is read or chanted in synagogues throughout the Jewish world. Our calendar of Torah readings finds us in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Hebrew uh, Torah, and we are reading uh, beginning in Exodus 27 through Exodus 30, and the name of the parasha in Hebrew is Tzitzaveh, which is usually translated as command, or you shall command. I want to give you, the listener, an overview of our parasha before I introduce you to our guest, who's going to help me unpack some of the more significant aspects of our Torah portion. This week's Torah portion begins by God telling Moses to receive from the children of Israel pure olive oil to feed what is called in Hebrew the everlasting flame or ner tamid of the menorah, which Aaron is to kindle each day from evening till morning. We then have a lengthy description of the priestly garments to be worn by the Kohanim, the high priest while serving in the sanctuary, and they are described as follows. All Kohanim wore the katonet, a full-length linen tunic, the misachnayim, linen breeches, mitznefet, or migba'at, a linen turban, and avnet, a long sash round about the waist. In addition, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, wore the ephod, an apron-like garment made of blue, purple, and red dyed wool, linen, and gold thread. The high priest also wore the choshen, a breastplate containing 12 precious stones inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The me'il, a cloak of blue wool with gold bells and decorative pomegranates on its hems. The tzitz, a golden plate worn on the forehead bearing the inscription yud Hey vav Hey. Tzitzavet also includes God's detailed instructions for the seven-day initiation of Aaron and his four sons, Nadav, Avihu, Elazar, and Itamar, into the priesthood, and for making of the golden altar on which the Ketoret was burned. Ketoret is usually translated as incense. So this week's Torah portion continues the discussion that was begun last week in terms of focusing the reader's attention to the temple sacrificial cult. Just a reminder that a few weeks ago, the Jews stood at Mount Sinai and received the Aseret Brot, the Tablets of Covenant. The week after, we read of the social regulations in the parasha Mishpatim, and then last week, we begin the construction of the tabernacle, which is served by the Kohanim or the Kohen Gadol, and even the lower-level priests, Levayim. And so we are going to be um, investigating the purposes and tasks of the priesthood and the building of the tabernacle from this reading through the reading of the book of Leviticus. 
the narrative sections of Torah that we become so accustomed to in the book of Genesis through Exodus um, 19 will take a backseat to this uh, intense description of Israelite religion focused on the sacrificial cult. With me this morning to discuss our Torah portion and other aspects of the sacrificial cult is Rabbi Neil Borowitz, who was elected Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Avodat Shalom in River Edge, New Jersey, in June 2013, after serving the synagogue as their rabbi for the previous 25 years. Prior to assuming his position in River Edge in the summer of 1988, Rabbi Borowitz served as Hillel Rabbi, an instructor in biblical and religious studies at the University of Texas in Austin, the executive director of the Labor Zionist Alliance on the United States, and as Rabbi of Union Temple in Brooklyn, New York. He received his rabbinic ordination from Hebrew Union College in 1975, and in March of 2000, he was awarded an honorary doctorate of divinity from that same institution. He has a wide uh, resume of work in the community, not only in New Jersey, but throughout the Jewish world. And uh, it is my pleasure to welcome again, as our darshan, as our explainer of the nuances of Torah, Rabbi Neil Borowitz. Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Thank you. Thank you, my friend and, and classmates. Yes, we, we studied together for five years um, and then have enjoyed throughout our careers trying to unpack the meaning of Torah for various audiences. And it's always a pleasure to learn with you. My pleasure as well. So this week's Torah portion uh, begins in a somewhat unusual way. I'll read it for our listeners. That's the Hebrew. Et b'nei Yisrael. And you shall, in this translation, further instruct the Israelites to bring you clear oil of beaten olives for lighting or kindling lamps regularly. Now, the Hebrew, which I translated as lamps regularly, is near tamid. But in the world that we call um, the Jewish world today, near tamid has another meaning. What is it? It it means eternal light. And it's symbolized by the fact that uh, in synagogues uh, all over the world, uh, and for really the last two millennium, uh, in, the in the sanctuaries, there's always been a light that continued to burn. Uh, and that light has come to represent God's presence in, uh, within the community. Uh, and it's a, it's a fascinating example of how Torah uh, is a living document. And so how do we take the text and put it into the context of our lives? So uh, the rituals described uh, in this week's Torah reading and last week's and really till the end of uh, the book of Exodus uh, and all of Leviticus, as you mentioned, except in two weeks, this little uh, narrative about the golden calf, it all describes uh, rituals that cease to exist within uh, 
when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70 uh, of the Christian era. And both Judaism and Christianity uh, are based in the Bible, but are post-biblical religions. Uh, so the question, the question for Judaism uh, has always been, how can I live as a Jew in the world and in, in the world in which I find myself? So, so let's let, let's break that down for our listeners a little bit. Um, this week's Torah portion, and as you said last week, and except for the small interruption about the narrative story of the golden calf, is going to be about the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, which will be the uh, prototype for the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple in Jerusalem will serve as the locus for what um, is usually called by scholars Israelite religion, the sacrificial cult. And the Torah tells us um, in great detail, uh, both here and later, about how we shall use the sacrificial cult as our vehicle to serving God and affirming the covenant. But you've um, interestingly mentioned that following the destruction of the second temple in 70 of the Common Era by the Romans, we no longer have a locus in Jerusalem. And so Israelite religion, the religion of sacrificial cult, is um, no longer available. And um, what takes over as the focal point, which then leads to our discussion about synagogue life? Well, it's prayer worship focused in a place called the synagogue. Uh, and it's, uh, and all of a sudden the priest, the, uh, the hereditary priesthood, ceases to exist and uh and really the uh the right the r-i-g-h-t uh to perform the rights r-i-t-e-s are given uh to uh to all members of the community historically uh male members of the community so any any jew over the age of 13 uh is permitted to uh read from scripture, to lead worship services, uh, to perform uh, any of the acts that uh, were in biblical times assigned uh, to the priests or to their larger tribe, the Levites. Uh, so it was a democratization of Judaism. In the 20th century, uh, we started to see uh, a movement of egalitarianism, of including women, but that's for another, uh, another podcast. Uh, so the interesting thing is, so how do we deal with it? Because as, as Jews, we believe that somehow what was, that everything that emerges uh, and everything new that emerges has to uh, be connected and, uh, to the text of the Torah. Well, the Torah serves... Um as a foundational document, as does Quran and the Gospels and the assorted books of what are known as the New Testament. Um, and I suppose you're suggesting that 
even when new rituals or new rites or new behaviors are instituted, um, there was a desire to um, anchor them in antiquity. Right. Thanks. Absolutely. So this word ner tamid, which uh, this this phrase, these two words, ner means a light, uh, tamid uh, means always or continually, uh, and what we uh, what's explained actually, uh, there was a, a rabbi who lived about a thousand years ago in France named Rashi, who uh, became uh, really the uh, the lens through which Jews for the last millennia uh, have have read uh, our sacred scriptures, both the Torah and the Talmud. And Rashi uh, makes the point uh, of saying that uh, the the phrase that the word tamid uh, refers to the fact that it's something we do continually. Uh, every night and every day, just as the offerings were offered every morning and every evening, uh, that somehow this is continual. And we, we have evidence that, uh, in the, uh, in the temples in Jerusalem, certainly we know, uh, from, <clears throat> from places like the Dead Sea Scrolls and Josephus, that in the second temple period, there was a, f- a flame that kept the, uh, the altar uh, upon which the sacrifices, uh, both the burnt offerings and the grain offerings, uh, were offered, burning continually. The, that it always burned on the Temple Mount. And one of the jobs of the early um, lower class of priests was to um, feed the fire. Correct. So this became already in biblical times a sense that this light represented God's presence. In the uh, uh, in this sacred place, and and here we find, I think, a fascinating uh, concept for us in the twenty first century. How do we? How did the ancient Israelites uh, bring God's presence into their community? They had to feed it. They they had to. Per- it was a partnership. They saw this as representing God, but they knew that the fire didn't burn magically. Uh, that it burns because people were continually uh, bringing their sacrifices, bringing the the fuel to uh, to feed the fire, and in the synagogues that emerge uh, in the uh, in the decades uh, after the temple, it became a custom to have a light burning uh, in that sanctuary. Uh, and somehow somebody had to feed the oil to it. Uh, today, uh, where we use electric light bulbs, synagogues generally, as, to keep this ritual going, will have that ner tamid uh, on a, a separate fuse. So the, even when you turn off all the lights in the building, that light stays on. But there's also a, a connection back to what to the temple times. Because that light only burns in a synagogue today if somebody's there to change the light bulb and if somebody's there to pay the uh, the electrical bill. So it still takes, we bring God's presence into our midst, but we have to bring it. We have a, a responsibility. It's not that God is both everywhere all the time 
and yet God is really in uh, in our midst as a community, as a, as individuals, when we allow God in, when we bring God in. The revelation at Sinai has God standing on a mountain, shrouded in mystery. The Mishkan tabernacle is um, the very opposite of mystery. Its design and its construction is detailed with um, great specificity. Uh, One could even say with minutia. Um, How do we read that transition? Why did the Torah feel the need to um, help the Israelites feel God's presence differently than they had at Sinai? Well, I think it actually goes to the story we're going to read in two weeks in the Golden Calf. What happens in a 40-day period uh, when Moses isn't around, when they, they haven't, they experienced whatever this mystical experience as a community uh, on, on, uh, on one day. For 40 days, they're not experiencing this, and Moses isn't there. Uh, what happens? So how do we bring that experience and how do we ritualize something in our community? I think what's fascinating is that this Mishkan, which comes from the word to dwell, a dwelling place, is also called a Mikdash, uh, a holy place, but really a separate, unique place because uh, the word Kadosh uh, in Ugaritic, a cognate of Hebrew, means to separate. So we make things, people, time, place, and space holy by separating them from the mundane. And it's also called an Ohel Moed, a tent of meeting. So what is a synagogue or a church? Uh, It's meeting places. Uh, And it's a place where we come to meet with each other and and to have a meeting with with God, with the divine, with, with something greater than us. Uh, By the way, I think in this post-COVID world, uh, it's so important for us to come back together uh, in in live communities. Uh, Somehow, uh, it's wonderful to have radio shows uh, and Zoom uh, and television, but somehow it's not the same uh, as being together with people and the feeling one can get in a real sense of a community. Uh, and uh, and the pageantry uh, that's described uh, in in this week's Torah reading is also important. That somehow to feel that something is unique, is separate, is kadosh, and yet it's a place where I can meet with you, and I can hopefully uh, meet with the sense of the divine. And and God is uh, in Jewish tradition, we we believe that God is simultaneously imminent and transcendent. He's within each of us and is beyond all of us. Before we turn to the um, choreography and the uh, great beauty of uh, the ceremony, let's um, spend a bit more time on the Ne'er Tamid. Um, the Ne'er Tamid is basically a light. 
Um, it could be, as you said, um, oil-based. It could be gas-based. It could be electrical-based. Its source of energy could even be uh, solar. But it's a light. And do you have some thoughts to share with our listeners as to why light becomes the symbol of the divine? Because there are many ways that light is used in the Torah. Um, so perhaps you can um, expand on this imagery of light and how it fits within the um, Torah and the um, goal of the Jewish people in the world. Light is, is a symbol of the divine, uh, according to Torah. Uh, by the way, the world is created. The first thing that happens uh, in the beginning of Genesis uh, is uh, that God creates uh, the universe, uh, actually abracadabra, you know, these words we use for magic. Uh, are actually Aramaic words which mean abarakadabra. Uh, I uh, I created as I spoke. That's uh, you know that that Judaism and uh, and Christianity believe that it's through the word uh, through uh, that the world came into being. And the first thing that's created in Genesis, uh, the first five verses of of Genesis, uh, is light. God says, let there be light. And there was light. He or by he or. So, and Israel is uh, the command given to Israel uh, out of at Sinai is to be an orla goyim, a light unto the nations. And so what does that mean? Without getting into a long conversation of chosenness, which is, as you said earlier, for perhaps another show, what does it mean to be orla goyim? Uh, I believe it means to uh, be responsible for uh, bringing light as a metaphor uh, for vision. Light, uh, light is uh, a metaphor for uh, and light is the opposite of darkness. That, and in almost all human literature, uh, we find the difference between good and evil, light and darkness, uh, is parallel. So our responsibility uh, that, that Sinai, that the revelation at Sinai gives to us uh, is to bring light into the world, to, to enlighten ourselves, uh, to, uh, to bring the light of, uh, of goodness uh, in and to, to contrast that to the darkness of evil, of hatred. Your, your brother is also a rabbi. And he's written eloquently about the Ne'er Tamid. And so I want to give you an opportunity um, to share with our listeners um, some of his thoughts on this. Thanks. So uh, my brother wrote a commentary, Finding Recovery and Yourself in Torah. Uh, my brother uh, spent his career uh, uh, running a, a, a Jewish uh, rehab center called Beit Shuva where they use Judaism 12 steps in psychotherapy to help uh, addicts, uh, alcoholics, drug addicts, uh, gambling addicts, all, all sorts of different addictions uh, to find a path to recovery. So uh, my brother uh, in 
discussing this uh these these verses we're looking at uh uh notes that the oil comes from beaten olives a phrase that indicates that on, that only the oil and not the pulp of the olive is used in lighting the nertamid uh he continues by suggesting that the light of the nertamid is a metaphor for the light of god within each of us as we've been discussing and just as the nertamid required oil that was separated from the pulp of the olive we each need to separate out the spirit of god within us from the pulp that clogs our spiritual veins and arteries prevents the free flow of god's spirit within us so oftentimes uh we get clogged up some of it you know some of that uh some of that plaque in our spiritual arteries uh using the metaphor of uh of the heart and the body uh that plugs us up is is sometimes uh our ego uh our, our our self selfishness uh and the torah is uh especially in all the time spent on discussing these rituals is trying to uh address the individuals to be a little selfless uh and more communally responsible uh because we can we have an obligation and an opportunity uh to be God's voice and God's hands in the world uh that if we believe God God to be uh that 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 God is total spirit uh God can't God can't stop someone from picking up a gun and shooting somebody else but a human being can you know it's fascinating how um both you and your brother are able to remind our listeners that even a portion such as this which seems to be very literal has great spiritual meaning and that the entire uh, enterprise of uh, Judaism today is to look within the words of the Torah and find the uh, truths, not the truths with a capital T, but the many truths that exist within the words and sentences. And for us to be a light unto the nation, um, as you've suggested, um, implies that we have um, seen for ourselves what it is that allows us to uh, channel God's presence into the world, which is perhaps not the message that the rabbis intended with the Torah, but certainly the message of the Torah portion. Um, we don't have the opportunity to um, look at all how um, the dress of the high priest has been transformed into the dress of the Torah. But um, for those listeners who might be interested if you look at our Torah portion and see the garb of the high priest, and then find a picture of how the Torah is dressed in synagogues today, you will see that um, there's been a transfer, that the high priest no longer exists, but the Torah takes the centrality of Jewish life and Jewish ritual life, and therefore um, the garb of the Torah, the ornaments of the Torah, 
make it clear um, the connection to uh, the sacred text. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Neil Borowitz, uh, Rabbi Emeritus of Temple Avodat Shalom in River Edge, New Jersey. I want to thank him for his insights. You can hear our broadcast on 99.1 CHRIFM or on chri.ca website or as a podcast on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you shalom and a good day. Shalom.